It's Cardboard Time, episode number 47, and I'm your host, Arwen Kathke. In this episode, we'll talk about one of the games that I've played lately and have a great discussion with T. Kyrez about all sorts of things, including sustainability in games and how to avoid FOMO. This is going to be a shorter episode as I am currently getting ready to head to Dragon Con as I record this, and there is so much good stuff in this interview, I wanted to make sure that I left some time for it. If you are hearing this on the day it's released, I have just gotten back from Dragon Con yesterday, so hopefully I actually wound up getting some games played. We'll see how that actually turns out. Uh, And it is time to check the shelf of shame. Speaking of games getting played, it is at 165, and that is down by one. No new acquisitions, but I did get the Little Flower Shop to the table. Very pretty game. Uh, You can go back a couple of weeks on my Instagram and Twitter and check out the pictures from it and see for yourself. At the end of the game, you kind of wind up with this nice little uh, shop window where you're displaying all your flowers and vases and hanging baskets and things. So it really is a very pretty game. I will get into the gameplay a little bit more in the future because this is one that I do want to talk about. Speaking of talking about things for a full review, uh, today I do want to talk about that old wallpaper from 2022. This plays from two to five players in 15 to 30 minutes, designed by Daniel Deli uh, and Nathan Thornton. The artist is Matt Paquette and Company and published by AEG. In that old wallpaper, you attempt to recover the wall of a house with wallpaper, matching as many patterns as you can. In the game, a number of locations are available where wallpaper cards will come up for grabs. Each turn, players simultaneously choose a number 1 through 10 from their own personal deck of 10 cards. And if they're the only one to pick a location, they get the card or cards in that location. If you choose the same number as everyone else, the person furthest up on the recall track gets to take their choice of the tide columns and goes to the back of the track, while each other player receives a hazy memory card that features a wild wallpaper pattern along only one edge instead of along all four edges. When you receive regular wallpaper cards, you must add them to your other played cards immediately, ideally matching the pattern halves to create a complete pattern. Patterns come in four colors, with each color having two sizes. A wild pattern is also available, which seems kind of weird, but so be it. To end a turn, deal a new wallpaper card to each location, which means some locations will likely have more cards than others. At the game's end, use your hazy memory cards to complete patterns on the edge of your wallpaper, then score for each color of pattern. The score of a pattern is two points for each matching large and small symbol of that type, and a set bonus for different bonus shapes. The player with the most points wins. 
So this was a review copy of the game provided by AEG. I did pick this up at Gen Con, and I will say that this is the best wallpaper-themed game that I have ever played. Uh, we were sitting in the media meeting, and Nathan Thornton had said, you know, there's a whole plethora of wallpaper-themed games out there, and, you know, he just wanted to design another one, uh, you know, being sarcastic, of course. Uh, but yeah, this is definitely the best wallpaper-themed game that I've ever played. I did get the opportunity to play this with my mom uh, as well, and she was like, okay, wallpaper? That that was the theme that they went with? Okay, interesting. Um, but I, I really do love the theme of this game. It's very different, uh, and just because it's so different, you know, it really sparked my interest. It was kind of quirky. Uh, I don't know if this is Nathan's preference. If you go back to another game that he was involved with, uh, Green Team Wins, uh, that he designed, you know, that's got that kind of 90s-themed thing going on, and I, I'm sensing a pattern here. So I'm not sure if it's his personal preference or uh, if it's just a coincidence, but I haven't played Medium, which I keep meaning to get back to uh, from him as well. Uh, so I'm not sure of the theme on that. The pattern matching is pretty simple. Uh, all you do is you just place a card adjacent to another card. Uh, so gameplay flow-wise, it's very simple. You're just taking your card and building out your tableau, uh, making sure to respect the adjacency rules. So that's it. Uh, just orthogonal. You can't go diagonal like most games. Uh, I do like the bidding mechanism in this game as well. It's a bit different. Uh, you're bidding these cards that you have, 1 through 10, in your own personal deck, and you're actually putting them in for a position, uh, not necessarily your choice of track. You're going to try to kind of feel out what your opponents are putting down on the table and try to guess what they're going to bid, essentially. And that is going to determine your position. So you may not necessarily get what you think you're going to. And then your ties are broken by the track that I had mentioned. Um, you know, and, and that, that tie uh, does leave a pile untaken. Uh, so that does leave some incentive for bigger piles uh, in subsequent rounds until those get taken. So the piles get taken in ascending order, and then uh, you you basically place those wallpaper cards. There is a two-player variant, which also approximates a third player, um, but I do feel like this game is more effective in the four to five range. Uh, you want a lot of that interaction when it comes to building. You know, the, the two-player variant was okay, but... Uh, I do feel that four to five is definitely the sweet spot for this. I will say that the one negative that I had with this game were the ovals. Basically, when you're dealing the cards out to each position, if you draw a card with an oval in the center, you get to draw another card to that pile. Uh, at the end of the game, whoever has the most has a negative two-point penalty, and the player with the least gets uh, two points added onto their score. I don't feel like that's enough of a uh, detraction uh, for taking all those extra cards, uh, especially if you can make another four to six points off of a solid pattern match for, you know, just 
taking one additional card in addition to all the rest that you're potentially going to get. It didn't feel like it was enough. Um, I, I don't know the development cycle of this game. Maybe if you had like a negative point for each one that you took, uh, that might be a little bit more of a detraction. Not sure, but that was one thing that I didn't feel really hit that much for me. Uh, this game was great for color vision. Uh, the patterns matched well with the vibrant colors uh, to make sure that there weren't any issues. Uh, everything was different enough that there was absolutely no issue that I had with that. Uh, if you are color vision impaired, uh, you can just go by the patterns and everything is fine. So uh, really, really good job on that. I love the foil accents on the wild cards. I think that the, the foil accents are a really cool touch. Uh, it really made the wild cards pop out so you could see them immediately as they were dealt and you were like, oh, okay, this is a, a pile that I might potentially want to target. Really, really enjoyed that. It is wearing well. I think that that adds another level to it. Really, really nice touch to this. Uh, and this was easy enough to explain to my mom. Uh, we're going to feature her review and the first review of hers on the channel right now uh she said i really enjoy it so there you go straight from my mom um that was one thing that nathan had said uh he was trying to focus on with the game that it was going to be more of a family weight game that it was going to be something that families could get to the table uh and i do feel like it fits into that spot. It is a solid filler. It's a good warm-up game. It's a good family game. Uh, if you want to get this out with other people, it only takes like a round or two for it to just click in. Uh, and at 15 to 30 minutes, you can do like a little practice round and then get right back into a, a standard game after you've learned it. So definitely different enough that it's gonna stick around in my collection for my final judgment. Uh, nice solid filler game. I can pop it out at the start of the night if I want to have a couple of rounds with something for lighter games that's different. This fits in that category too. It's not gonna be for your heavier gamers. I, I do feel like it's, it's very simple. Uh, it is of that filler weight, so if you're not looking for something like that, this is not going to be in your wheelhouse. Um, but if you are looking for a solid filler and you do like that pattern matching, this might be one to take a look at. And that was that old wallpaper. Well, stay tuned because coming up next, we are going to have a fantastic interview with T. Kyrez. On today's interview segment, we have T. Kyrez. They use they, them pronouns. And while I normally explain who my guest is, T. has so much experience in the industry that I'm just going to let them explain to you who they are. Uh, with over 10 years of experience, T., welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, not quite 10 years. 10 years next month, actually, in the industry oh. as uh, yeah, as part of the industry. I've been like a gamer for longer, um, but I start the journey of my career when I made the first video. So uh, yeah, but I, <laughs> I've worn a lot of hats 
uh, I started as a content creator. I had a YouTube channel and I wanted to make videos that I actually wanted to watch um, that had different people and had a different vibe than just somebody standing in front of a shelf. And I did that and it was great and people really liked it and supported me in doing that. And then I, I went to a lot of conventions and would do like daily vlogs where I was like vlogging at the show and then I would like edit it the night of and then like it would be up the next day. I still have no idea how I managed to do that because sleep deprivation. But <laughs> it's it's very real. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then I uh, transitioned from that into eventually I was able to quit my full time job. Uh, I was a computer scientist, worked in Silicon Valley doing Silicon Valley stuff, but I quit and went full-time doing freelance in the industry in a variety of hats. I did marketing, social media management, community management, sales, things like that. Um, eventually transitioned into more marketing role, worked on bringing Welcome To to the US, which is a great one. I'm really happy about that. And then um, I ended up at Haba, where I was the head of games for North America and did that for a number of years and then I left and started my own business and now I am between things but I'm also on the board of several <laughs> boards uh, in the industry that work on a variety of things. Um, I like mm -hmm. to support and give money and time and effort to a lot of great organizations including the Spiel Foundation which is an amazing charity. Definitely look it up please uh, listeners um, and yeah lots of things. I have to say, like, I've been following you for a long time. You know, you've made a huge impact in the in the board gaming community. And you were on Twitter. And the reason I asked you on today was there was a tweet that you had that really kind of piqued my interest a lot. Because I, I think it it's very relevant to what we do here. Um, you know, anytime that you have a channel that reviews board games and kind of talks about all the new stuff that's coming out um it, you you kind of you can help it but sometimes it's it's you know a lot of excitement that you get into but i do want to read the tweet for everybody and you said is there a games channel that helps curb consumerism of tabletop games like helps people make solid decisions about what games to purchase without adding to the fomo and must buy culture we got going at the moment so I definitely wanted to talk to you about this because it really made me self-reflect and, um, you know, kind of explain your viewpoint here um, because I, I think it's a very valid one and I think it's something that you're very passionate about talking to you. In the show notes, there's a note about explaining what FOMO is. So I'll do that really quick first. Um, <laughs> so FOMO is, it stands for fear of missing out. And um, with board gaming right now, especially because there are so many companies making games, print runs are smaller than they used to be. There's just so many companies and it's, it's easier to make a print run of a game small to just kind of like test it out to see if it'll work. Or because games are being made with Kickstarter and they're kind of unreasonable to be reproduced. And I'll get into that later. It's kind of a like, we're going to print mm -hmm. this once and you might not be able to get it again. So there's this culture that's been developed of like, if I don't buy this right now while it's brand spanking new, I'll never get it. And so you end up with a lot of people who are watching all of these content channels and, and marketing, which is paid for, um, of like reviews and previews and things like that of games that are just coming out or are on Kickstarter or something like that. 
and you end up with this culture of, of people saying like, this is a must buy or like, get this or you'll miss out or this is a something. But you end up in this situation where people buy these games um, because of these reviews. And then they just, when they get delivered, they get added to the stack of unplayed games in the corner, especially Kickstarters. Mm-hmm. For, for how long it takes for them to arrive because you don't know exactly when and what else is going to be coming out at the same time, that kind of thing. I'm really big on sustainability from an environmental and an uh, economical, economical standpoint. When you end up in a situation where you have all these games being made uh, and people just buying them blindly and then later trying to get rid of them because their house is overwhelmed with like kind of meh games or games that they're never going to play for whatever reason... Um, you end up with just like a bunch of games at Goodwill or in the landfill, Mm -hmm. which doesn't help anything, you know? So, yeah, I tweeted that because I was a little frustrated because I'm really aware of a lot of the games that are coming out because it's like part of my job. Um, But when I go back and I watch a lot of the content that's made lately, a lot of it is just hype men. Like it's just hype people that are excited and hyping up a product and not really like critically reviewing it. And there's a few channels that that do a good job with that, but it's kind of developed into this thing where like certain channels just they're racing to have a video out first about a product so that they can like convince people to watch that video and like it or not. And more times than not, the video is being paid for or sponsored in some way by a company. So it's just kind of this weird situation we're in right now. Yeah, I I do kind of want to go back to, you know, the stack and that that grows and grows and grows. You know, when I first got into the hobby, uh, you know, my story, I had 330 unplayed board games at one point. And it's just like at at that point what do you do? It's it's overwhelming. And that's one of the reasons I started going and podcasting and trying to make sure that I get through these games. Um some of them I've had to get rid of just unplayed, you know, never even touched them other than to punch them in some cases. And, you know, I bought them, I purchased them. They added like no value other than, you know, making my basement a little bit smaller. And that was it. And I I do think, you know, there are a few things um, that people can do to kind of help avoid that because I've certainly been guilty of that myself. And I think when you can make more educated purchases, um, that's, that's a little bit better than just going and saying, Oh, this is great. Uh, I, I need this in my collection. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, that I've done, uh, to try to, to combat that is to realize, you know, a lot of these times when you go into, a convention, you can go into a flea market and you can buy the new hotness from six months ago and you can buy it maybe half price, maybe a third of the price. Um, you're not going to be able to do that necessarily for everything, but it is a overwhelming majority of the games that come out. You will see at math trades, you'll see them at flea markets, you'll see them there being traded and sold. Um, you know, and you will have an opportunity for the most part to get these things. That is one thing that I've really done to kind of limit my buying is 
limit it to the things that I absolutely kind of, you know, really want. Uh, I've watched a lot of coverage. I've watched a lot of different reviews. And I think to your point, you know, there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of, um, you need to buy this. You need to buy this. It's, you know, the, the hottest new thing. And again, some people do actually get paid for that. Um, you know, so I, I think watching a variety of different reviews can help with that. What have you seen that kind of helps, you know, kind of curb some of that FOMO or, you know, what have you done to kind of help curb some of that? Well, I, I'm a bad example, <laughs> um, for, for my stuff. Um, I have developed ways and systems that like allow me to cycle games and product through our house really quickly because, um, for me, I'm not more times than not, I'm not buying a game because I actually want to play it. I'm buying it for research purposes. Um, usually I'm looking at production, game rule book, how it's made, that kind of stuff. Sometimes for certain games, um, mm -hmm. if it's been out for a little while, I actually can get it um, used from a local game store um, or several of the game stores in my city because I'm in Portland, Oregon, they actually have rentals. They have libraries of like new releases and I can just rent them. And several of the game stores in town don't even charge me anymore when I do that um, because they know if they don't have a game for rent and it's one of the new ones, I will more likely than not buy it and then like sell it back to them as used or like just give it to them to put in the demo library. And so I've ended up in this situation where I no longer have this like stack of games where I'm like, I literally don't know what to do with these because I have ways to get rid of them because the reality of my situation <laughs> is, is I would say eight times out of 10, I am not buying the game to actually play it. Um, so it's kind of a weird situation for me. Mm -hmm. Um, if it's a game that I'm interested in personally, and it doesn't make sense for me to get from a research standpoint, um, looking at competitors or something like that. Um, usually I just do a lot of research and I know, what channels are getting games and reviewing games for money. So a lot of content creators and channels, they have sponsorships, they have um, different ways that they need to make money. Like they need to make money. They sell ad space, they sell um, promotion slots, they sell like micro things, that kind of stuff. You also end up in situations where you have content creators who are, given product because the publisher knows that they're going to talk about it favorably and the content creator is more inclined to talk about it favorably because it is a high ticket high value item that if they make content about it quickly they will get a lot of views and a lot of views means a lot of ad revenue on youtube and subscriber growth and like growth as like their channel as being in the know and you can kind of see a lot of these channels. Here's an industry that might get some people upset, but I no longer care. A lot of those bigger channels, they don't even get the rules right. A lot of the times they play the game maybe once. They don't fully play the game correct. And when you watch the review, if you've actually played the game or if you are a company that maybe gave them that product to do a review on their very high profile channel... I do not know 
of a recent video that did not have a rules mistake. And more times than not, sometimes these channels will like point out and be like, oh, I don't like it because of this reason. And it's awful because of this reason. And it's, it's usually because they got a rule wrong and just made an assumption. But like mm -hmm. their audience doesn't care. And the publisher has this like thing where like, I have to give this channel the game because like if they do like it it's, it's gonna make everything possible for us and like if they don't like it we won't sell as many but it's okay like it's this weird thing that happens and as a consumer i know this i know these inside baseball facts so i just don't watch these channels like i know they're not reliable in mm -hmm. that way <laughs> Well, I, I think that's really interesting because I didn't necessarily know where to go when I started off in the hobby either. You know, you develop that over a number of years. I've been gaming since 2012, 2011, roughly. So you, you kind of do develop that sense of, okay, yes, this is somebody that I can trust. I've gone, you know, and followed their recommendations multiple times. It's been kind of correlating to what I like. And, you know, you kind of curate that. Um, but somebody coming into the hobby new, especially if they see that content that is just going to go and say, oh, you have to buy this, you have to buy this, yeah. you have to buy this. Yep. That can get very dangerous for somebody. There's actually a cycle. I've been in the industry long enough and I've had conversations with um, other veterans who've been in the industry for about as long as I have or longer. And we all see the same cycle. And Gil Hova actually wrote an amazing blog post about this about four years ago, talking about this cycle where you have these people that come in, they're so excited. They've just discovered this new world of gaming. And oh my God, did you know there are games that are these, mm -hmm. this amazing? And so they end up falling into situations where they find those big popular channels that have the big views and the sensational like culture and talks like that. And those channels are, oh my God, you should get this game. Oh my God, this is amazing. Oh, this is unbelievable. You'd be missing out. This is a must buy. All of those big marketing buzzwords. And so they grow these very large collections and it takes them a long time to get through those collections and actually play. And then there's this other side of the culture where it's like, look how big my game shelf is. Look how amazing my game shelf is. Look how many amazing must-buy titles I have on my game shelf. And then it starts to be, you get big enough where it starts to be kind of like a almost embarrassed thing where it's like, oh, I have all those games, but they're not played. I don't have time to play them. Or you end up in a situation where you might play one of the games and then it turns out you don't like it. Uh, and it, it could be you don't like it because you just don't like how it plays or the theme doesn't really speak to you or you find it too complicated. And then you're in this situation where it's like, well, but I'm supposed to like it because this person and everybody says it's good. So is there something wrong with me because I don't like this game? Mm -hmm. And so then that grows to the shame of unplayed stuff and things like that. And eventually people come to terms, hopefully, usually people come to terms with the fact that not every game is for them. They're not going to be able to play everything and that they have too many unplayed games that they just bought because somebody said it was good. And then they start to purge. They try to figure out how to get rid of the games. They refine their tastes. They become a little bit more of a conscious consumer Mostly, for the most part, right? And I see this cycle, and it's really funny. You end up in this time period where you 
have a nice balance and you don't feel the need to hold on to literally every game you've ever played or own every game you've ever played. And you have enough community around you where hopefully like some of your friends have games. And so like you've kind of split the collection or the burden of owning these physical things across multiple people. I find that cycle like from beginning of discovery to like having a healthy like relationship with the games where you don't feel shame or guilt or like overwhelmed is about three and a half to four years. And it's just like, you see these new content creators that emerge and make Twitter accounts and they kind of like all go through this cycle. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. So I'm curious how long it took for you before you hit the like healthy balance. (laughs) About four years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I really, I, I would say 2016 was really like my big start of like acquisition and really getting that, you know, just engine rolling where I'm starting to to buy everything. Like I had bought some stuff 2011, 2012, 2013 and that, but 2016 is really where it started hitting because I, I was coming into a new city. I was trying to make friends. It was a way of me going and kind of providing a space for people to come in and, hey, you know, I'm new to the place, but I've got board games. You can come over and it's a free night of entertainment. You know, just bring some food and drinks and we'll hang out. And then 2020 is really where it started to hit for me. Like, I need to do something about this because this is getting really bad. And you really do. You start to understand that, you know, some mechanics aren't necessarily for you. Some themes aren't necessarily for you. Exactly what you said and, you know, what Gil said, too, um, you know, because I'm a big fan of, of uh, Gil's work as well. You know, it, it's it's really, really accurate. And it's really kind of scary how accurate that is. Um, you know, and, and I would advise our listeners to kind of take that into consideration as you're building your collection. Um, You know, think of some of the stuff like, do I actually need this? Do I actually have to have this in my collection? Um, Does a friend have it? One uh, conversation that was released on the last episode uh, that actually I just recorded, but nobody knows that in this space. So, um, it, it was it was interesting talking with my friend Jamie because she said the words, I was tired of not having it available to me when I wanted to play it. And I think at that point, that's kind of a good trigger of saying, okay, I can, I can bring this into my collection now because I, I want to play it. It's not available. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's kind of like a good way of saying, okay, yeah, maybe I should, I should do this. Yeah. Well, and if you have the, some people counter that discussion, like you play it. And then when you feel like you have that urge, like Jamie was saying, where I, I wanted to have it available whenever I wanted to play it. Um, some people counter that with the fact that they don't have the mean, like if they're not the one buying the game, nobody will have bought the game for them to play it. And part of that, mm-hmm. I always kind of want to go back and push back on is, is, well, 
are you buying the game on a Kickstarter or are you buying the game from like a game store in person? Like, and it's been out for a while. Like, where are you? When are you purchasing this game that you feel that way? There's a situation where when the game is on Kickstarter, there's this, the whole point of Kickstarter originally, originally was to kickstart businesses to say, Hey, I want to make this product. Help me make this product. This product is new. This product is revolutionary. Tabletop gaming has made Kickstarter turn into kind of a store. It's a pre-order system. You're not necessarily Mm -hmm. a lot of businesses Mm -hmm. that are on there that are doing Kickstarter aren't doing something new. They're not doing something revolutionary. They have a business. They have a business making tabletop games, in fact. And several of the reoccurring Kickstarters that happen, they need the Kickstarter money to like make the thing they want to make. But their entire business plan is designed around Kickstarter. It's designed around getting pre-sales money to make this thing that they want. And that's not sustainable from an from a, from an economical standpoint, because if that Kickstarter failed, then they can't make that product and they can't keep their employees employed. That's not a sustainable business practice to one, base mm-hmm. your business on a third party and two, assume that you're going to get pre-order sales that frequently that often of what is essentially a game, right? And so you've seen some businesses, larger companies move away from using Kickstarter in the last few years and doing pre-sales on their own platform and their own like website. So they've removed that third party and then it just becomes pre-order. They're not even like, Hey, help us kickstart this business. They're just literally like, we're going to make this game. You want to pre-order it or not? And that's a lot better way to Mm -hmm. do it. (laughs) It's like a very subtle shift, but it's a lot better way to do it of like, Hey, we're going to make this anyway. The number of people that pre-order will tell us how many we should make. Right. And, and then you go and you exactly. look at these other companies that are doing these mega Kickstarters with like a billion stretch goals of like ridiculous stuff that, in my opinion, just distracts from the game. Um, and then it just becomes you're just they're just making a bunch of shiny things and they're trying to make the game super shiny. So you give them more money or you back it faster. But like, how often do you actually play the game with all the shiny things? You know, like, and if you have mm-hmm. a bunch of Kickstarters, like once a month, you're doing a Kickstarter that's like that. How often are you actually like fully invested into those products to the s- size and scale that like would sustain you purchasing them f- repeatedly? So uh, I love Kickstarter. Uh, there are definite ways to use Kickstarter well, but there are certain companies and businesses that literally are just using it to make Money. <laughs> There's a different word I was going to use. Where we're going to go with money. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> no, I... I definitely agree with that. Um, and and there's been some interesting practices I've seen on Kickstarter. And I, I know the one that you're alluding to, you know, that we won't mention. Um, <laughs> but it was... It was interesting because, you know, early on in my gaming career, it was, uh, it, it kind of came up like, hey, you should back this Kickstarter because, you know, you're going to get a ton of stuff and you can always resell it if you don't like it. And, you know, the the eBay sales for this stuff, you know, at one point were going crazy. And then that dropped off. 
And you had a lot of people that had a lot of cardboard and plastic and all sorts of fun stuff and boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of it in their basement that all of a sudden now you can't move. And it's like, well, I, I have this. You can buy the whole thing for $800. And it's like, do I want to spend $800 on one game? You know, again, it goes back to your statement of how often are you going to use all the shiny bits? You know, and I, I think that the shiny bits have to be like, you know, integral to the gameplay. Everything kind of when you're making that decision, you should probably take that into consideration. Like, am I going to get these eight million expansions for this game out? You know, am I going to play with all these different characters? Whatever. I I do like what people would say is, you know, quote unquote, good production. But I think that that has kind of been tapered down to, is this going to be integral to the gameplay every single time that I get it out to the table or not? Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that a lot of these characters, you, they've kind of fallen into this whole thing. And um, I'm going to, one company in particular kind of stumbled upon it and, and I, they're, the company's gone now, so I can talk about it. It's Tasty Minstrel Games. I used to love Tasty Minstrel Games. They had really great gameplay, really high quality. The baseline quality of the product was just solid. They had a great partnership with Eggert Spiel and Plan B Games to bring the games over back when Eggert Spiel was just Eggert Spiel in Europe. And so they had a lot mm -hmm. of really strong European titles that they would import. And sometimes they would develop their own games in-house and they would kickstart them in the traditional way. Like, if you go back and look, they're one of the first companies that actually used Kickstarter to kickstart a tabletop game. And then in, oh, geez, was it 2017, 2016, they started doing deluxified versions of their games. Yeah, and the deluxified versions <laughs> yep. of the games added deluxified components. I remember. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're like, that's what got me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the deluxified components of the game didn't add anything to the gameplay. They did not add anything to the game experience. They literally just were a higher quality component. And the component in the base game was already really good. Like we're talking thicker chipboard, really nice finishes. They had, they used like a satin finish, which was kind of unusual for games. Um, and then when they deluxified, they added metal coins, screen printed meeples, um, more custom shaped meeples and wood pieces, um, recessed boards, things like that. And when you add those types of components, you increase the cost of your production. But the other thing that you do is you increase your margin. You also increase the amount that can go wrong. So there's this thing when you're making a luxury item where, well, so in, in general, the rule of thumb when you make a product is that the cost to make the product, have it delivered to your warehouse, like through customs and freight and all that jazz should be no more than like 20, maybe 25% of what you plan to set the game for as, as MSRP. So then depending on how you sell the product, if you sell it at MSRP, 75% of the MSRP is just pure profit for you. So if you're making a deluxified game and it costs you $10 to make and have the game delivered, and then you're charging $50 for that product, you're making $40 a game. 
pretty decent. You don't usually do that, but pretty good. Like there's other mm-hmm. ways to sell games. What Tasty Munchal did was they made a deluxified version where their margin was higher to begin with. So they were saying, okay, well, we're going to spend 15 bucks to make this unit, but we're going to charge 70 bucks. So that's $55 a profit right there. And we're going to sell it via Kickstarter. So we're not going to worry about wholesale or distributors or any of the middlemen in between us and that profit. So we're going to make real good money, real good money. But the issue is, is <laughs> when you make everything deluxified, nothing becomes like it becomes the new normal. But deluxified quality components have a higher standard of like expectations. Like you have customers that are like, I spent 70 bucks on this and this is dented. I want a new copy. And it's like, it's just smushed a little. It's cardboard. We're not going to send you a whole new mm-hmm. copy because this is smushed a little. Like if it was a $50 game, a $40 game, mm-hmm. and it wasn't deluxified, you wouldn't have that expectation of like, this is a big fancy deluxe must be perfect and pristine thing. And so it's it's kind of evolved into this thing where you have these companies making big deluxe versions, which hilariously require more expensive shipping solutions because consumers expect a higher quality end product. So you've gotten into this spiral of like environmental wastefulness as well, <laughs> because one of the cheapest ways mm-hmm. to make something deluxe is to coat it in plastic. Um, and that's like a whole other issue I have. <laughs> that's that's always good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it's it you end up in these situations where it's like people want to set the bar. They, they want to say this is a limited edition, really fancy, once in a lifetime item, and we're going to get the bigger, bigger margin on how we sell it. But the problem is, is then your other products, which are supposed to be like maintaining your business and your employees, nobody will buy anymore because they want the deluxe version. But then if everything you make is deluxe. Certain people are going to be like, it's too deluxe for me. I don't really want that. It's too expensive. So you end up like in this weird, and then the customer base that expects deluxe is like very picky, we'll say. It's just, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I I have seen that. I think it was a really good comment because I, I have seen where you'll, especially you'll go on a Kickstarter and you'll have, you know, just the one version. It'll either be the deluxe version or it'll be the plain version. And you'll hear people say, well, I want a deluxe version. I want, you know, you know, these chips to be all plastic. And then, you know, they'll go and they'll say, okay, well, this time we're going to make the chips all plastic because we heard your feedback. And then you have a bunch of people coming in and saying, well, we just want cardboard chips you know we're we're fine with that you know we don't want to pay 85 dollars for this game we want to pay 45 dollars yeah so i definitely see that a lot one thing that wasn't in the show notes i i did want to talk to you about one of the most wasteful things that i see in board game production and i'd like to hear your thoughts on it is the huge box so you have a gigantic box and you have about, you know, people can't see the size I'm making, but, you know, you have a couple of decks of cards and then, you know, a regular size box. What are your thoughts on that? Because I, I know it drives me absolutely crazy to see that. And 
A, it takes up way too much shelf space. B, it's a whole bunch of material that didn't have to be used. So that is that delightful thing come up, comes up a lot. Um, and um, it's the dead air problem. And the issue is America. Um, <laughs> American consumers have it in their head that bigger is better. And so you end up in a situation where you often end up where um, companies have to make a game box larger so that it is next to its competitors and has a perceived value that is worth the price point because bigger is better in America. And it's actually one of those things where if you look at the games that are being imported from Asia and Europe, they actually are being put into bigger boxes. So a great example of this is Oink Games. Oink Games um, did a partnership with Target and had to make Target versions of their popular games, uh, Fake Artist New Ghost New York and Deep Sea Adventure, that were bigger to help justify the cost of the product because Target was not willing and did not think that consumers would buy the Oink game box at the Oink game price point, which is 20 to 25 or $30, depending. Hobby gamers who know Oink games and like understand the concept behind Oink games love that box size. And like I love it extra mm-hmm. because Oink games, they used to hand make those games. They used to hand make and hand assemble those games. And that box is the size that it is because that's the box that they could like buy off the shelf. And so they started designing games specifically to fit that box. And then when they would come to Spiel, they would actually bring all of their products for us and Spiel in their suitcases, like in their carry on suitcases. And so they only had as much product would fit in their suitcases. They wouldn't bring clothes. Like, they would come and then go to Primark and just, like, buy clothes for the show. And, like, their suitcases would just be product to sell. It was amazing. Now you end up, like, they're a much more successful business. (laughs) (laughs) But the box size is the same. And people understand that. But when you go into a game store and it's you're new to the hobby and you look at the small game section, you're like, oh, this game is 10. This game is 15. This game is 25. And it's half the size of the other games. What's happening? You know? Um, And that's a great example of the dead air problem in an opposite direction. Because most people don't think about the dead air problem until you get into bigger boxes. So your example of this is a deck of cards and some meeples and stuff. It can be in a much smaller box. You don't... Like, that... the, The dead air space in that is much bigger and a lot of times it's covered up by inserts and there is a manufacturing mm-hmm. issue onto why space is needed and that's the punch boards so when you manufacture games you do have to have them printed onto the punch boards and the punch boards have to be large enough that they go through a printer right um and then you have to uh, put them in a box. So let's, I'm trying to think of a game off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. King Domino. Yes. King Domino. Perfect example. G golly. Okay. King Domino from blue orange games is pre punched. So it's a smaller box. It's $20. It has a plastic insert and it has 
pre-punched game tiles. And then it has um, the castles on punch boards that you have to punch yourself and assemble, right? Um, and then it has meeples. The reason mm-hmm. King Domino is pre-punched is because if they didn't pre-punch those tiles, one, they couldn't have an insert. And two, the box would be, have to be much larger to fit the tiles on the punch boards with sprues in such a way for shipping. Mm. So they'd either mm-hmm. have to ditch the plastic insert and then you would just get like a brick of punch board sheets, right? And then you have to sit there and punch them, but then there would be no insert or they would have to do a much bigger box that would still hold the insert and the, the punch boards and, and whatnot. Because Blue Orange prints the game the way that they do and the place that they print it and the amount of units that they print them, they can have the game pre-punch and pre-assembled. But it's not worth it for them to do that for the castles because the castles are so small, it's just like a single half sheet. So that'll just fit in the box, right? And then if you think of like, on the flip side of that, if you think of another game, King of the Dice from Haba. Uh, King of the Dice, the board game, I'm bringing this up because it was the last large game I worked at at Haba. (laughs) Um, It's a square 12 by 12 box. Um, and there's, uh, tokens, there's dice, there's cards, and then there's boards that you assemble. There's, um, a few different map boards, and then you assemble them to like make the map. Um, and if you punch everything and then you put it back in the box, the box really could be half the size. But from a manufacturing standpoint, to get all the chips and the map boards, it does need to be that size. So it's, you end up in the situation where like, okay, well, we could increase the price of the product, make the box smaller, but have it pre-punched, pre-assembled with an insert. Because you also have to have an insert to ship pre-punched components so that nothing gets damaged in shipping. So like, there is a manufactured reason for dead air, but not all dead air is because of a manufactured reason, if that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, no, that that does make sense. And that's very fascinating to me to hear because I, I've always kind of wondered, like, you know, why why exactly is there so much just air in here? And you know, it's that does make a little bit more sense now that you explain it like that. It really depends on the product. It's it's part of packaging design. There are certain products where it like literally makes no sense whatsoever from like a manufacturing standpoint, and then you get into the economics of how sales and games are perceived and the value of games are perceived. Great example is Birds of a Feather, the game that I was, uh, that I produced and made it at um, Snowbright. We did it with um, environmental forward thinking. Um, So sustainable, uh, recycled paper, FSC certified like through. And the size of the box is very intentional. It's a balance between price point and functionality of the manufacturing. But if you take the insert out, there is dead air. And it is just basically a 60-card deck of cards and a thing. You could fit it in half the size. You could. Um, But Mm -hmm. half the size wouldn't sell. That is another thing, is is just the perceived value. So that's really... That's fascinating. And and you brought up, 
you know, sustainable production. And I know that that was that was one of the examples I was hoping that you were going to bring up because of all the recycled components and and that. What examples of the best company practices have you seen with sustainable production? And, and what practices would you like to see more in the industry trying to drive that sustainability? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of great stuff coming out of Europe right now. So Europe has much stricter manufacturing requirements than the US and China, obviously. Um, and a lot of European um, based companies actually do manufacturing in Europe because it's just they have the facilities and they can do it. It makes sense. Um, so companies like Cosmos, um, Ravensburger, uh, even uh, Asmodee does some of their printing in Europe. And because European manufacturing standards are so high um, in regards to sustainability and plastic production and things like that, they just do it. Like, <laughs> like it's not like it's just standard practice. Like I have a couple of Cosmos games that I picked up um, recently and they're FSC certified mixed, but like they don't, see the point of mentioning it same with uh, a Robinsberger game I picked up because their puzzles are actually manufactured using recycled FSC certified paper because uh it just makes sense for them to do that given the scale that they do and they did that years ago so it's one of those things where like with those European companies Mm -hmm. they just are doing it because it's like been the way that they do stuff for years now Haba too, obviously. Haba did great stuff with sustainability, but um, it's one of those things that, as an American consumer, it's not often talked about um, and assumed. So, um, any European-owned company, not every game that they do is going to be, you know, amazing from that regard. But a lot of them are pretty solid. Anything with plastic in it is unfortunate. <laughs> There's a lot of alternatives to plastic. Um, China-produced games can be produced in a sustainable way. It's 100% possible. It's doable. There are companies that do it. Uh, But it's not... But when you look at plastics and custom plastic pieces and games, those most exclusively have to be made in China because the requirements for manufacturing air quality and all that kind of jazz are lower. Also, a lot of plastics are just manufactured in China because the facilities are there. So there's that too. Look for, you can't necessarily say, oh, this game was produced in China. It's bad. No, like that's not, there are actually um, factories in China that are, that are solar powered and have zero emissions and do recycled with everything. Like there are factories doing good things there. It's really a decision of what the publisher wanted and what they paid for. So you want to look at the games and look at the components of the games. If you can, you know, if there's a photo on the back or something like that, look on the packaging for like anything about recycled FSC certified, either recycled or mixed or, or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, Look for uh, things that have less plastic in them. Miniatures are cool, but like, you know, I think the planet is better than miniatures. I, I would agree. I can't live on miniatures. I, I can live on a planet. I can't live on miniatures. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I want to switch topics a little bit. You're non-binary. And how much change have you seen in your time in the hobby as far as inclusion goes? 
I know that from my perspective, you know, I, I came out in 2020 and I came into the hobby as a cis white male and inclusion wasn't really necessarily a, a huge deal for me at the time. I mean, it was something that I kind of had, you know, my side eye on, like, is this going to be a safe place to do this? But I think that you've been tapped into it a little bit more and, and you've been leading the charge a little, you know, way more than, than I have uh, for a lot longer. So, you know, what, what have you seen as far as that change in the hobby? There's definitely more people coming out now publicly, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely always struggled with my gender identity, like always. And in the hobby and in the industry, it always kind of was a thing. And I didn't come out super publicly until I think like 2019, 2019, 2020. I don't remember. But the people that like knew me and I interacted with on a consistent regular basis kind of already knew and they weren't surprised. So there was that. They already knew I didn't like to be on panels where it was like women in gaming. Uh, and they knew that I super hated it if it was like boys club. Cause I was just like, no, I'm here too. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so now you have things like tabletop gamers and lots of organizations that are coming out and having space at shows so that people know that there's a community there and a safe space. There are organizations that are prioritizing people who are not the majority in gaming, both from a giving those minorities a platform and also at the same time, like supporting them through different things. There's lots of organizations that do it right now. Um, Tabletop Mentorship Program is a great one because like you can get a mentor and like they very loudly talk about the fact that they want to support minorities um, of like every type. (laughs) Um, So there's that. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Gamma is currently working and doing the Horizon Fellowship program where they take a young or not a young professional but young business uh we'll say in tabletop that is a minority and they're helping them come into the space um with professional support and financial support to help grow their business which is amazing um and you have a lot of that kind of stuff happening and and it's very blatantly no we're supporting you because because you are not the the majority classification it's refreshing <laughs> and also like gen con this year was the gayest and most colorful like and most like racially inclusive like gen con i've ever been to it was amazing um and there's still bigoted assholes uh that are attending and they're upset about it but like always always and there will be because like their thing is is no longer theirs they have to share sharing is really hard so it's one of those things like i see it and it's it's definitely more prevalent and you can have those conversations um there's a transgender person on the gamma board right now and uh i myself am on several boards that have different people of different identities uh and it's it's one of those things where like we can be in this space and we can loudly be in the space and people can feel comfortable now about it. 
which is really awesome. I like your comment about Gen Con, and we were recently in a space where we were talking about that, that, you know, it, it felt way more diverse. Uh, this was my first Gen Con, but I had been to plenty of origins. I had been going since 2016. Um, I went to PAX U last year, and it did feel just noticeably, you know, more diverse. So it was more queer. You know, you had more BIPOC representation there. You had more AAPI representation there. And it was fantastic to see everybody just kind of coming in and being part of that space. And again, like you said, I'm sure that there are plenty of bigoted people, but I didn't make time for them. I just wanted to be in the space with other people that wanted to be there as well. And just, you know, kind of sharing our shared love for games. And I think that that population is kind of declining. Um, you know, un unfortunately, you know, you and I both see that it's, it's always probably going to be there to a little bit of an extent. But, you know, sorry that you have to share the table with with everybody, but it's kind of too bad at this point. I think a lot of it is, is that people have been sharing the table with people not realizing for a long time. You end up in mm -hmm. a situation, like this is what happened with, with, I mean, the whole gay situation in America. Like the fact that you can't, like gay, people can be gay now. Like there are Republicans who are gay and like, it's like, oh yeah, no, you can be gay now. So it's one of those things where there are people who quietly are who they always have been. Um, but now there's more, I don't know, safe spaces where you can come out. There's more people coming out and, and saying like, no, this is me. And I've always been this way. Um, and so it's like, Oh, okay. So it's either I can completely ignore the friendship that I've had with you for nine years or, I usually, oh, okay. So I think that kind of helps. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Oh, it certainly does. Yeah. Yeah, I I had a friend that, well, I've, I've had multiple friends that have kind of had to deal with my transition and, you know, try to process it. And they've gone through their own thought process. And a lot of them were just like, yeah, you're the you're the same friend that I've always had. You're just able to better be yourself and you're going to be happier. So that's what I want for you. And then you had a couple of friends who were just willing to throw that friendship out the window and you kind of have to say, well, okay, that's the way that you're going to be, you know, come back when you get the stick out of your ass, I guess. So, <laughs> so yeah. you know, yeah. that's, that's the thing. I was going to say, I feel like with the industry, that's kind of how it's been. It's like, there are people that are rising up and doing good business things and like their businesses are succeeding. And like the old grumpy men can't stand there and be old grumpy about it. Cause like they're wrong <laughs> and they're becoming painfully made aware of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, we, we actually recently had a panel and it was transgender 101. And we had a gentleman come up and basically say, I've, quickly come to realize that if I don't learn and educate myself and try to understand what you go through better, I'm not going to have a table anymore. And I want to make sure that I still have a table and I'm there to support my friends. So, 
you know, that's that's refreshing to see. And this is coming from somebody who, you know, has played D&D for like 50 years and, you know, definitely has a lot of experience playing games. I, I can't say playing D&D for 50 years. I don't know if it's necessarily 50 years old. It's, it's I think old. It first, first dead. I think it might be. Wow. That's kind of wild. Yeah. Well, I kind of, after this, I'm going to look it up right now. Uh, I forget that the seventies was seven, was 50 years ago. Ago. So That's frightening. yeah, 74, it'll be 50 years. in. uh, okay. Yeah. In, in two years. In two years. Yeah. I'm That's sure wild. Wizards of the Coast is going to go crazy on that anniversary. <laughs> so what are your other interests besides tabletop gaming? I do so many things. I have ADHD. So I do hobbies like somebody with ADHD. Uh <laughs> No, like so you go really deep and you kind of become an expert <laughs> and then like you get bored of it and then you just do a, another mm-hmm. hobby um go so, on to something else yeah exactly so like i've had a lot of hobbies over the years that i went very deep in um right now the thing that kind of persists is, is just outdoors stuff um i really like I like snow and I like skiing and I like snowboarding and I like snowshoeing, but winter isn't year round, sadly. Um, so I'm getting into other sports like hiking. Um, I've always enjoyed camping. I actually just went camping this weekend. Um, I camp a lot in the summer if I can get away with it. So yeah, lots of outdoor stuff. My gardening hobby has kind of declined. Uh, I was really into gardening and I do still have a garden that's doing pretty well, but like the heat wave kind of kills my desire to be outside uh, in a garden. In a forest mm-hmm. on a mountaintop, I will go when it's 90 because if it's 90 down here, it's like 70 up there. But yeah. Yeah. So. And shade. Of, yeah. Shade is helpful. Shade is super, super helpful. Um, I actually, we spent the weekend, um, we drove up to our favorite hidden mountain lake where you have to like hike in with your boards. And we were the only ones on the lake. Uh, and I got hella sunburned. Um, and it was worth it. <laughs> so what is on your table right now? What are you playing? Anything good that people need to know about? <laughs> Any must buys? <laughs> Um, I have been playing a lot of solo games recently, um, just because I have been taking the month off of August and just on like vacation this month and my partner works still, um, unfortunate for him. And so I've just been playing a lot of solo games during the day. The game that I've actually been playing the most from the solo stack would be Next Station London, um, which is a roll and write from Matthew Dunstan. And I like it because it has an interesting thing where um, it's a flip and fill. It's not a roll and write, really. It's a flip and fill. You have a deck of cards and you flip the cards until um, a certain number of a certain type of card come out. And then the round will end and then you shuffle cards and you do it again. But the thing that I like is every game, there are four, there are four colored pencils and you shuffle the pencils. You randomize the pencils. And the order in which you use the pencils, you use one pencil around, and that's um, the starting point, 
that you start from with each colored pencil is like set. So the pink pencil will always start from this one location, but because you've randomized the pencils, the order in which you draw your colored lines is different every game in addition to the cards that are being revealed every game. So it's like you're playing snake hmm. with yourself and like the you are doing four subway lines in London over the course of the game. And so you will just end up every round, the next round, you just curse your past self more. You're just like, why did you, why did I do that? Why did I go to this purple station? Why did I, you know, um, I always like games where I'm upset at myself um, for past decisions. They, they always mm-hmm. enjoy it. I enjoy that a lot. So I've actually played that game solo quite a bit. And then Steve's played it with me a few times and Oscar really enjoys it. So out of the, I don't know, 15 games I got at Gen Con for personal reasons and research reasons, that's the one I think that has hit the table the most um, and I've enjoyed the most. The other one would be um, Why the F Did They Keep This by Travis Hill. It's a little solo RPG game, um, but you can play it co-op. And it's about you going through belongings of somebody who's passed away. And, and dealing with those belongings. And so it's meant to be a journaling game where you journal about what you found and, and what you're going to do with it and what it is. But Steve and I enjoy it um, as kind of a storytelling game where we take turns describing the items and we just develop this fictional character through the items that we find. So um, we really enjoy that. Travis, Travis did an amazing job. Travis does fun, fun RPGs, um, but I like that one because it's just a... Uh, 18 cards and take it anywhere and yeah sometimes the smallest games wind up being the best and i think next station london might actually be on board game arena if i'm not mistaken yeah Ooh. well and because it's playable here's another one so next station london i believe the loses have actually played it on their twitch stream so you can actually play along with them um, it's a game that you can play remotely with people as long as each player has the four colored pencils or markers that are close. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm pretty sure if the losers haven't played it yet, they will be soon. And it looks like it is on Board Game Arena. Yeah, so you can play it there. You can try it before, you know, you even have to go and set foot into a into a store and pick it up. I, I'm interested to play it because I'm I kinda wanna know with the colored pencils how they're gonna look as far as my color vision goes. Uh because I do have color vision issues. So Oh yeah. It'll be interesting um, to see. I think well you because the cards aren't linked to the pencils at all, you could just use four colors that work for you. You just would have to assign Oh okay. Yeah. So it's not would... specific. Only the starting location. So, like the green triangle, ha- the green has to start at the green spot. So, you might have to, if you can't, uh, yeah, I'm curious to see. They, hmm, if you're full colorblind, they did nothing to help you. Uh, if it's red green colorblind, it might be okay because they did a pink shade instead of solid red. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure, but yeah, okay. I'm interested too. But it looks like there's a couple playthroughs that people have done on YouTube. So if BGA isn't your st- style, you can also um, play through 
with uh, some of the online playthroughs that are there. And the player boards for the game are on Blue Orange's website. So you can actually get a copy of the, the oh, player awesome. sheet. Yeah, and you can print it out or just do a digital one with like paint or whatever, GIMP or whatever it is people use nowadays, uh, and play along that way. Awesome. That sounds amazing. Anything else that you'd uh, like to discuss? I think the biggest thing is just that we've talked a little bit about kind of a lot of stuff, but you can enjoy games whatever way you want to enjoy games, right? Like it's supposed to be a, a thing. That, it's supposed to be play. One of the things that I think happens when people are excited about a new hobby or a new thing and specifically a hobby that can quickly just turn into consumerism, um, just capitalist consumerism is you kind of, you have to remember that the games and products are being made mostly to make somebody money. (laughs) Uh, And a lot of marketing Mm -hmm. is done to help with that. And there are good games. There are great games. There are, and you should be able to play with everything, but like, it's one of those situations where like, if you were into Lego you wouldn't go to the Target store, you wouldn't go to Target in the Lego aisle and buy literally every Lego set, right? Like, you wouldn't buy the City Builder Lego sets, you wouldn't buy the Star, you wouldn't buy everything Lego makes. You wouldn't buy all the Duplo, all the City Builder, all the minis, all the, like, individual kits, all the $300 kits, all the whatever. So you shouldn't expect of yourself Um, or anyone, really, to do the same thing with board games. Like, you shouldn't walk into a game store and have this pressure or this feeling that, like, oh, I don't own that yet, I should buy it. And when you watch or consume media about board games, remember that a lot of that media is made to sell you something. Some of the media is made to help you be a better consumer. Some of it's made to just sell you something. So take that with a grain of salt, right? everything you consume in that regard. And also, you know, think about the the toy aisle. Like you don't need to own everything in the aisle. It's just at a certain point, it's not, it's not realistic, <laughs> both for your house and storage and, and mm-hmm. money. And there's nothing wrong with buying games and enjoying games. It's just it, the sense of scale that gets out of whack. Yeah, and I, I think you, you kind of have to be conscious about it and make smart decisions about your acquisitions. And, and you know, I can definitely second that, third that, fourth that, and fifth that myself. Understand what you're buying, understand why you're buying it, you know, try before you buy, see if you have a friend that has it that you can, uh, you know, go and, and play their copy you know, there's so many ways. Go to go to a library and check their copy out. Some some libraries actually have a great board game collection as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a ton of ways to go out there and make sure that this purchase that you're making isn't just FOMO. I'm going to go and I'm going to pick this up because I might never be able to pick it up again. You can. You, you, you can. can absolutely yeah. pick it up again. It's It's going to be fine. The amount of games that I have bought for deep discount is ridiculous. There's a there's a BGG um, no ship flea market for the Portland area, and it currently has 858 titles available on it right now. 
And I bet you there's a hotness that's like out that's just on this list that I could get. Kingdom Death Monster. Uh, I could get that. Uh, Streets Deluxe Edition can get that. Quacks of Coinberg Deluxe Upgrade with every wow expansion and base gate with all of the upgrades. Orleans and Orleans Invasion. Wow. Um, this is literally just the first page that's up right now. Puzzle Strike, which is an amazing game and was going for a ridiculous amount of money recently. Ten dollars. You can always get stuff, and you can always um, the BGG Market Geek Shop is sadly changing, but they'll still have the classifieds. Um, there's still no ships. There's still ways to get these things. Um, complete set of fleet. Every fleet game and expansion ever made. Um, oh, another Orleans. Yep, the Kickstarter Deluxe Edition of Creature Comforts, Kickstarter Deluxe of Wonderland's War. And like most of these are already like they've striked down their own price. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, and that's just yeah. the second. Page. So it, it is out there. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. You can do <laughs> wow. it. Oh, there's another Kingdom Death Monster on the third page. <laughs> Two Kingdom Death Monsters? There might be more, actually. Let me just look. I know I was I was looking for that game for so long, and now I'm not. There are four. There are four <laughs> so... copies on this list of Kingdom Death Monster. I don't even know anymore what's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then what, you end up in... What is? What is? Well, and there's this other one. This one, this one's... This person's doing a No More Room Summer Game Call Group Auction. And they're listing like 60 titles. And there's some amazing stuff in here that's relatively recent. And then there's some stuff that was like hot a little while ago. I didn't see this sale. Otherwise, I'd probably pick up a couple of these items. But yeah. Oh, there's a Russian. I'm sorry. <laughs> there's a Russian Carcassonne. I'm so confused about that. No, I just love Rise of Augustus, which is like one of my favorite games. And so I always buy, cause it's out of print. They really skinned it as via Magica. Um, I call it Roman bingo. So whenever there's a mm-hmm. used copy for sale at a semi-reasonable price, I always pick it up because I um, will gift it. Cause my family loves it too. But my, my mom has a copy, but my brother doesn't have one yet. So I'm like, Ooh. anyway, sorry. It's another, <laughs> I love the game. I know I love the game. That's why I want to buy it all the time. I, well, and I want it to be available, as, as your friend Jamie said, I want it to be available whenever I want to play it. So if I'm traveling and I'm at this person's house, <laughs> and that's the one, you want to talk about dead air, that <laughs> game can fit its entire contents into the drawstring bag that comes in it. So you can just, so I buy them and usually I'll just do the drawstring bag and then like, there it's a travel set, done. Put it in your camp gear. Perfect. Yeah. All right. We should we should wrap yeah. this up. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just scrolling used games now. Oh, I'm so sorry. Don't do that. No. Um. Anyways, how can people keep up with you on social media? Mostly Twitter. Um. I'm the one tar on Twitter. Uh, I'm the one tar everywhere, but I am not really active on any other social media. Instagram just got too sad. Too many Instagram famous dogs. Just. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. You're just like, oh no. No, yeah. please don't let it be the day. No. Well, in the day that and TikTok, I ended up in the same problem. Um, the pug, the no bone the no bones pug. I realized I was so attached. And one day, one day, I don't know if the pug has moved on, 
But like, I was just like, one day this pug is not going to be able to make TikToks anymore and it's going to destroy me. So I just am going to stop TikToking yeah. now. <laughs> I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> I'm just going to leave right now. <laughs> yep, exactly. Well, T, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope this was educational for our listeners, and it certainly was for me as well. And I've got to go play a game of Next Station London tonight. That's uh, next on my list. So again, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for having me, and good luck uh, with your London uh, subway stations. And I think that's going to do it for us today. Take a look at our website at CardboardTime.com for more information. Our Instagram and Twitter is at Cardboard underscore Time. We have our board game arena group. Just search for Cardboard Time, start up a game, just chat with us. And our Twitch page is... Uh, cardboard time so that is our username you can go check out our twitch i've been doing every tuesday uh that might change uh coming up soon i am starting to get a little bit heavier into the twitch space so look forward to more twitch streams and any questions suggestions or ideas for discussion topics please email cardboardtime at gmail.com And as always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Cardboard Time. Happy gaming.